Welcome to the Training Ground Guru podcast in association with Huddle. In every episode, we bring you insights into the teams behind the teams in professional football. Coming up on today's episode. I've never seen someone who's a quick learner as early. The way he adapts these things from the training to the game, the transfer, and even the understanding of these things is, is just, it's a very underrated and hidden quality from him because he's always described as this very physical striker, but he's a very smart guy. I'm Simon Austin from Training Ground Guru, and this is the second part of my interview with Rene Maric. In this section, Rene talks about how a tactics blog provided an unusual launchpad for his coaching career, about his time at Borussia Dortmund and Leeds United, and about what it was like to work with Jude Bellingham and Erling Haaland. We hope you enjoy it. Hello, Rene. Thank you for joining us for the second part of the podcast. Pleasure to be back and then continue very, very left. Yeah, so a, a lot has actually happened since we spoke yesterday evening. Uh, Thomas Tuchel has been announced is going to be stepping down as Bayern manager at the end of the season. Yeah, I think uh, it was. Uh, it's an interesting decision because the club in the end decided quite in advance now to to make the change at the end of the season and we'll will be interesting in terms of how the players uh, will adapt to it and how we'll be able to still play to our best until the end of the season and and then the transition period will be very very interesting and will this affect your position at the club running no that's uh not related to it at all so my position will will stay the same I wondered if you might be involved in the first team, possibly, uh, after this. I wouldn't bet on that. <laughs> we'll, we'll wait and see. Let's wait and see. I wouldn't bet on it. <laughs> Just a final one on uh, this news today. What's the atmosphere been like around the club today? Obviously, because the club is so big, these things are... Uh, everyone is discussing these things. I'm from the outside, everyone is, is discussing Bayern Munich and... Yeah, in the whole world, but especially around here. And everyone has their say, everyone has uh, their guesses. And in the end, for me, uh, for me personally, I'm the opposite. When these things happen, it's just it's part of, of the business, sadly. And it's part of of how these things happen. But my work is focused on, on my team and uh, on my job. And so for me, I'm maybe even if I'm quite involved in everything and integrated in the club, for me, it's probably less of, of a topic for today or for these days than uh, for most people because, again, uh, it's Barn, it's just such a big club, it's such a huge fan base that everyone is discussing all the small things uh, about the club anyways. And when a big thing like this happens, it's like a shockwave and everyone everyone engages in these discussions, everyone wants to know something. And for me, it's like, yeah, I have to, I have to plan my training and uh, plan my meetings. And I was going to spin right back to the start of your career. And you've actually known Thomas Tuchel for a long time, haven't you? Yes, that's actually true. We met, I think, 12 years ago the first time and uh, had a, a lunch at the stadium for Mainz. And we discussed a little bit of football and we had a small, a very small, just like a consultancy from... Uh, from our side with, with the staff of Mainz for, I think, a bit over a season. And it's, it's a long, long time ago. I was very young back then. But uh, it was like the first time that I really had the feeling that these things that I was thinking about also happened on, on top level in, in a similar manner. And I'm uh, obviously grateful that he in some way gave me a, a, a confirmation of some things and then the motivation to, to continue in some paths. And obviously, especially back then, but even now, he, I think, is a big role model for a lot of coaches in, in the German-speaking countries because of his background. And it was really nice and, and, and a great thing for him to do to, to reach out back then to us. And how was it that he'd found out about you? He read an analysis from a game against Bayern, actually, Mainz Bayern, on our blog. And uh, he seemed to like it. He, he seemed to find it interesting and also that it was pretty accurate. So that's what he said. And 
Then his staff reached uh, out to us per mail, invited us. And when we met, uh, he was also sitting at the table and it was the staff and it was, uh, it was us. And we were just talking for a bit. And then uh, they showed us around the stadium and everything. We discussed some trainings, some, some games, some teams and some opinions and uh, we we had a we had a great experience for us it was a really big thing and i almost think describing it as a blog doesn't do it justice really because you're talking about uh, if i got it spiva lagerung um it's not as easy to pronounce right spielverlagerung no. <laughs> it uh, just means uh, switch of play or also changing the game in some way so yeah spielverlagerung yeah thank you thanks for that help because um, I first became aware of it more than five years ago and I read a very, very good piece. I think it became quite a famous piece about the half spaces. And it was a very in-depth analysis of this tactical concept. Uh, and it, it did become a famous website, didn't it, really, among fans, but also people working in the game? Um, yeah, you could say that. It was surprising because obviously we were just uh, some young coaches or people talking about the game and I was an amateur coach uh, amateur youth coach actually back then taking the under 11s back then it was after school I was in the Austrian army for a few months and we just started to discuss it like we just couldn't just put our opinions together and people feedback it just so we get some feedback and then learn and meet other people so it was more like starting out as a as a way of writing things down to in some way being able to feedback ourselves and get feedback on it. And we thought back then people will not really be interested. And that was never a neither an issue nor a topic nor a goal from us. We just wanted to talk about the game. And when we saw that people are interested, we went into more detail and we went into more discussions. And from that, I think it developed that it was uh, having a small hype Back then in Germany, people quoting it uh, in the German media, some some coaches, some some players uh, mentioning it when they were or former players actually back then. And so we got a yeah like a niche and following. And from that, the amount of readers got bigger. We got some consultancy projects. We basically had more than one pillar. So we I wrote a book with uh, another guy who was like a guest writer on our blog i'd say we wrote theory articles we wrote match analysis team analysis play analysis, just like whatever we thought is interesting or maybe for some readers ask for just delve more into the game and then put out something that that gets us some feedback and meet other people so some of the guys who write for it were readers and it's just it was never planned as anything neither journalistic nor pr nothing it just just writing about the game and as i said in uh, already that if you cannot explain it simple enough then you maybe don't understand it fully and we sometimes made it harder to understand and made it harder to read because we didn't understand it but that was also the reason why we did it just to uh, get some feedback and, and and improve from there and go from there and yeah it was uh, it was funny times uh, because through these consultancy projects and through the networking and through meeting uh, different coaches, people, even working for some FAs and in different countries, continents, something you never experienced. That was basically my work when I studied because uh, others have to be working as a waiter or whatever. And I was able to just uh, meet people, talk about football, write about football. And that was obviously... A big luxury and it helped me because I started coaching half a year before I we started Spielfolago. And it was like going parallel. I was doing things on the pitch and then I also did things in a more theoretical, academical way. And they're just trying through the years to make that difference uh, smaller and smaller through more understanding. Mm. No, it's really interesting. So you were at the Academy at RB Salzburg at the time that you were producing the blog. Actually, when I went to Salzburg, I stopped writing. So it was uh, mm. more or less from 2011 to 2016. And when I went to Salzburg and I signed a full-time contract as assistant manager of the under-18s, where we also had the under-19s in the youth league and under-17s for these type of tournaments, I basically stopped writing for Spielverlagung because uh, 
of conflict of interest in some way, but it's mainly because of time issues. So the club was open that I can do it, but uh, I just focused on, on being on the pitch and doing doing the stuff that he did and, and Salzburg the academy for, for that one year that I was there. And I know someone, I don't know if you know him, called Alex Clapham, who produced, he's got a platform called Cano Football. And it's a cool platform, actually. He'll visit clubs around Europe and he talks about what they're doing with coaching, training, tactics. And he said it's been very, very good CPD for him. But then it's also become very popular as well. So I was wondering, did it help your career a lot, do you think, doing Spiva Lagerun? Um, as you can imagine, I, I know Alex's blog. and I, I still try whenever I have time to, to read different blogs. I'm very lucky that because of Spieferlager, because of meeting people, very often I don't have to search for myself, but like people read interesting stuff and they send me the most interesting things and I still try to catch up because I think it just still tries to keep your perspective wide. And obviously it helped me because I've met Marco through it. I got the Red Bull job uh, in some way because of that. Marco was a former player of, of, of Thomas and he heard of the blog and of me and it was just a lucky coincidence. He was coaching at Salzburg and I was uh, studying there and we met and I was having my amateur team here and we started to talk football and from there after a few months of, of talking he was open to because his assistant uh, coach until then basically took a a role to be the coordinator for under 7 to under 14. He's now the sporting director of Salzburg. So he went his way in that pathway. And I've become uh, his successor as uh, Marco's assistant coach. And it helped me a lot because I probably would be coaching in amateurs football instead of having experience Premier League and Champions League. Also, uh, that experience helped me in that regards, but it helped me even more in just getting a lot of feedback, meeting a lot of people that are giving me feedback, that help me with discussions, that shared information, content, knowledge with me and and help me to improve because they were open with, with their feedback, but also with their knowledge. So in terms of creating a network of people who are just interested in football and talk about football, it, it, was, a, it was a blessing in disguise because, again, it wasn't really planned in that way, but it helped me a lot and it, it, it was part of my journey as a coach at the start. And it, it still carries me in terms of being always open to anyone, really. Like, it doesn't matter what's the name, but like just being open to, to feedback and to, to information. And then also still being open to, to reflect it for yourself and then trying to deliberately take, uh, take the best things out of, out of it. We get asked by a lot of coaches whether they should do social media, whether they should produce content. Uh, so, so what do you think about that? Because you're someone who's benefited a lot from that by the sounds of it. It sounds strange, possibly, but I'm a bit more an old school guy, to be honest. Um, if I would not be in that job, I would have no social media presence because I'm in the job. I have to, but it's not like I'm not really regularly posting. I use Twitter because you have really the chance to get a good bubble where you can find a lot of information, different topics. You can follow people who have an academic background and skill acquisition. You can follow coaches. You can follow analysts. You can follow blogs. You can follow whatever. So that's really, really interesting. And I have it more for the sake of being informed and not someone else taking my liking, but I'm, I'm a passive consumer. And when I find time, I do it. And uh, actively, I just do it when it's uh, when I get asked for I don't know, an update or people telling me to do something on it, but it's not, it's not my, it's not my strong side. I prefer being uh, in the meeting room, in the pitch and in the office, because I think that's where the actual work is done and not uh, on social media. And did writing the articles help you really kind of think about your principles and your coaching ideas and your tactics? Did, did that help a lot? Yes, because it helped me feedback get feedback and honestly sometimes and just uh show me how stupid i sound like in your head you sound uh, much better than if it's written down or sometimes you think you have a lot of ideas and then you write it down it's half a page and you're like oh yeah that's not as much as i thought so it, it, it's like a mirror it shows you uh, it, it humbles you because sometimes you just write stupid stuff you, you, or you think you have more in your head or it's not formalized so just to create content and and being self-critical and making that content clearer and concise sometimes i'm embarrassed how long it took <laughs> but uh, i think it was helpful in that in just putting my thoughts down and then being critical about them and also in a way 
seeing, reading how it would sound and uh, trying to, yeah, accept that and then uh, trying to make that better. I think that was something that it helped me to to improve on. And until today, it's more like a mindset that whenever I like to film the meetings, if it's possible, and then uh, revise it and see and just like just like you do video as a player, right? Or also like you do training with a player, then it's it's a good tool. And I think that openness and that way of thinking about yourself is probably the thing that stayed the most with me from the time. And you were talking about Marco Rose, who who you met while you were at Salzburg. Did you get on straight away, you two, and did you have very similar ideas about the game? Um, yes and no. I think I liked him more at the start than he liked me, <laughs> which is fine. Uh, He's a uh, bit older than me. Uh, I think it's uh, basically exactly 16 years. And uh, I think in terms of our background, that he came from the club school of thought because obviously he was his coach and Marcus is a great man manager. And then being a Red Bull Prime, where I... In some way with the blog, but even more of my amateur team, I had to create my own idea from scratch. Then obviously it is very authentic and it stayed the same until today in, in its core, but you make a lot of mistakes. And obviously like that Red Bull education, it helps you to to quickly negate some mistakes that you do. Whereas when I was with my amateur team, I did some mistakes and I didn't even realize because I had not too much... Uh, to reflect on and from there I think it was really good how we started to convert some ideas to discuss some ideas for me to get a mirror to get feedback from someone who has a different type of experience and also from uh, my side for him to give some feedback to what he's already doing but also try to get some new input always having that idea okay I'm here to maybe change some things up and to maybe give some uh, different type of, of input and create some different type of output and sometimes he would just say no and uh, very often he was also right and at that moment to say no but it was a really enjoyable great time where I, th I hope that he also learned something but I think and I can say that uh, I obviously learned a lot of things and he was very it was also very good for me not just because of the discussion and these things but mainly because he allowed me to do so much so to do meetings in front of the team to do individual meetings without him to be part of individual talks which are not just like content but like leadership management to be part of that so in in that regards he helped me so much and it was i'm really grateful because i think it's not usual that as a very young assistant coach you're more or less taking on the journey fully in all these things even when we met with clubs to be part of that is is is, is not always normal and uh, it's 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 something that's that i'm very grateful for because he gave me experience that you cannot get as easily and as quickly normally mm -hmm. and we hear a lot about the red bull approach and you know ralph hasanut or ralph ranick uh, jesse marsh it's been very influential in many countries were you always aware of that rebel approach? And is that something that is kind of really imposed on you but centrally when you're at one of the clubs? Um, it was imposed on me both in terms of um, the category, the drawer that I'm put in, but also in terms of, of my personal CV and my development and my education. I started to be a coach more or less before that Red Bull style became a Red Bull style. So obviously it existed before with Rangnick and with his mentor uh, Helmut Goes, but like the way it is now, I, you could say it's maybe since 10 years with Roger Schmidt and with the Red Bull Salzburg development. And in in some way, I was already a coach back then and had my own ideas. And they were shaped very much by, yeah, a, a young coach who's a fan of football by some players that I liked and some coaches that I liked, which were Van Hal at, at Bayern Munich, which uh, was Pep, which was Klopp. So obviously you look at them and you look at their teams and you're like, oh, I would like my team to play like this. And then trying to find a way to to apply this on, on amateur and, and youth amateur and adult amateur level. And then I went to Red Bull and then I got a more professional way of talking about the game and especially the transition phases and the, the against the ball phase. And I always say that it, it helped me a lot in terms of improving things that I would have probably not looked at 
especially not in that way back then. So it, it helped me so much in getting a clear structure in these things and just adapting um, my way uh, on the knowledge and the experience they, that they gathered over all these years and collected at, at, at the Red Bull education. But in the end, I, I think everyone has, has to have their own idea. They it might differ stronger or less strong in some phases, but uh, some, some things, some convictions, they have to stay with you because they're, they are the core beliefs of how you see the game. And these things develop before my time at Red Bull with the amateur team. And then by Red Bull, some of these things became stronger, some became better, and some changed, some didn't change. Mm. And we had Ruben Sellers on the pod, Southampton manager, a couple of episodes ago. And he was saying what's very useful about having this Red Bull philosophy is you can be very clear in your recruitment of coaches and players if you're so clear about the way you want to play and the characteristics you're looking for. I think it's not just in recruitment in general. But it, it, it's, it's a point that often gets related to Red Bull, but it's just a general point in life. If you have a principle, then your process can follow easier. If you have a reference, then you have a, something that you a target to strive to, a goal to, to achieve. And I think that makes you clear which intentions you should have, and that helps you to have the right behaviors. And just in the end, it's, it's identity, it's culture. And that's something that for me, again, I, I started to develop in, in my personal way when I was an amateur coach based on my beliefs about the game and honestly just things that I liked, <laughs> things that I like to watch, things that I like to see from players, from teams and trying to make sense of it, trying to put it into words. And again, it's, uh, it's somehow embarrassing and funny how long it took to put it into the right words and even simple words. But the core belief in terms of how I feel about the game and how I feel about how a game of football should look and the team should look and the player should look is... Uh, is his state over all these years. And then again, if you have that clear idea, no matter if it's called Red Bull or a different name put on it, like I think Barca under Pep, where they had so many La Masia graduates, I think uh, in general that that's identity and culture that helps you align all the processes in a club. How would you describe the Red Bull style of play? Oh, it's just uh, trying to attack from every game. Because that's literally the definition they have. They just try to to be uh, very on the front foot, very early pressing, very early trying to progress play with the ball, very fast in both things, very direct in both things, very high up the pitch. And that's the idea. And obviously a lot of teams try to press. I think what Rebel does uh, a bit stronger and more than others that try to press in that way is, is, is how they do it together, how extreme they do it, how they try to create an overload on the ball, not just around the ball, but literally on the ball to create a two-against-one situation for the ball carrier to win the ball. And then the, the, the type of transitions that you do not do these things with man-marking, but that you're more oriented with the ball and your teammate. And then the, the opponent is like the third, the third reference point. I think there are some details that you can do. And again, there are teams that pressed very high. Teams are pressed very well in the history of the game. You can mention teams like Feyenoord for Mestapel, Saki Milan. You have Lobanovsky's Dynamo Kiev, who maybe did it a bit deeper, but very coordinated. You have a lot of teams for history that have tried to do it, the Netherlands and Ajax under, under Michels. And then I think that's Red Bull, the way they do it is, is a bit more extreme, more structured, obviously, because that's a natural progression of, of knowledge and of education. And that's what, what makes them unique. And that's probably how I describe this, this type of how extreme you are in terms of press, putting pressure early, how many players you use, how, how, how focused you are on that phase of play. Our podcast sponsor, Huddle, offer exclusive video and data from the best youth football competitions in the world with Scout Youth Competitions. From under 14s to 21s, scout the best talent playing in the major youth football competitions around the globe. Make the correct scouting decisions with objective data from over 70 competitions, 900 teams, and 11,000 players. For more information, go to huddle.com forward slash TGG forward slash Scout. And... You had a lot of success uh, yourself and Marco Rose very quickly. So Salzburg on to Borussia Mönchengladbach and then Borussia Dortmund, you know, one of the biggest clubs in uh, 
Germany and also Europe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what was that like as a young a young man? Because you how old, you were in your twenties. Yeah. You? So when we went to when I went to the under 18s where we won the youth league in our first season, and then went to the professional. I was 23 years old. And then we played in the Europa League yeah. semifinals, uh, won the title. The next year we won the, the double and again played in the Europa League, playing against some some great teams. For, ins- uh, for instance, Zagis Lazio was something that really stayed with me. You go to Gladbach, the club that I really, really, really like just as a club. With the people there stays in my heart. And from there we, we adapted. Uh, we adapted from the start, even at under 18s, we adapted some things from the Rebel style through our discussions. We adapted in the first team, we adapted uh, to, to Gladbach and to their culture. We tried to make some of these things we, we think is non-negotiable for top level. We have the stuff that um, you could say is like the heritage of of, of, of Gladbach as a club with uh, Weisweiler in the far past, in the near past with uh, Lucien Fabre. And we tried to adapt this together with the players and I think we had a the great one and a half year there and then obviously we didn't end the the season on uh, as well as as we wanted to and we left Dortmund where I really yeah really uh, saw some amazing players and then just in general the whole journey every club was different every club was something that I can uh, take pride in working there and then where I learned a lot and where I saw some things in a different light, in a different perspective. So that's a, that's a really, really big privilege to be working there uh, together with Marco and also to follow not just my journey, but also being able to be part of his journey and then and, and follow him through all these years and see how he adapted to different things, how he coped with different things and, and trying just to, to learn from it for myself. And I know in Germany they have this phrase laptop coaches. And I guess you were kind of a, at the vanguard of that, really. Is that a description you like? Honestly, um, all these things, all these cliche stereotypes, um, I don't care. Like if they want to call me like that, it would be pretty stupid to nowadays if you do not use a laptop because it makes things much easier, especially if you have to organize a lot of stuff. Um, like right now as an under 19s coach, it'd be pretty hard without a laptop to make it work. <laughs> it would be a lot of paperwork and it would be pretty hard, but if people want to use it uh, in a in any way, they, they can do it. I just, it's it's a pretty good tool. <laughs> just like the cones on the pitch are a pretty good tool. The laptop in the office is also a pretty good tool. Yeah. And you were working with some incredible players during that time as well, people like Erling Haaland and Jude Bellingham who yeah. are now superstars like, of the game. It's an honor to work with, with players like this. I had so many great players. It started already with, with the, the under-18s where I had Soboslai at, at Salzburg in the youth. Then you have uh, some players that are maybe not as, as famous, but where I had a lot of fun working with them. Some players that are really tied to my heart because of their character, of the experience that we had, of the bond that we maybe created and the, the relationships that we had. And, and then obviously you have like, I mean, you mentioned these two, they're probably the 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 singular mix of all these things, players that I really had a good bond with, a great relationship on the pitch uh, in terms of, of, of working individually with them, of talking with them, of learning from them too. Uh, because obviously you can, from these type of players, you can just, just learn that you can give to other players great personalities and amazing world-class players who are just also very, yeah, they're quite popular. So uh so they fulfill all of these things, but um, there are also other players that I really enjoyed and loved working and still in touch until today. And there are some names that uh, might pop up in a few years. There are some names that, uh, again, might not be as popular outside of, of the clubs they're at or uh, the Germany. Or, but uh, it's, it's, it was a lot of fun. It was a privilege to have so many different types of personalities and players in my career. Have you been surprised at what an immediate impact Sobersly has made at Liverpool? How good he's been so quickly? No. <laughs> I'm not, because uh, <laughs> we all, always knew that he is a tremendous talent, and it's just up to him how how consistently he's able to apply it. And then I think when I saw him develop from like when he was 16 years old to the later stages when he was joining us back at the first team at Salzburg, 
I think uh, you you could see that there's unbelievable potential. I think just in terms of shooting the football, he's maybe the best in the world, or at least up there. And if he's able to get into these positions, and then also fulfill his other tasks, and he has that ability, that capacity, he's, he's a tremendous player. I suppose it's no coincidence as well that Liverpool have signed so many players from the Red Bull group with the similarities. And yeah, style. like I mentioned, when I started uh, coaching, obviously it was a lot of, of Pep and, and Van Gaal, but also Klopp. And I think Klopp also already had that similarities to that Red Bull style that developed in these years, uh, where it's just about also dominating the ball when you do not have it, dominating the game when you do not have the ball. And then in the same way, being able to, to score goals from transitions. Uh, the counter press, obviously the gig and press, as it's called, uh, uh, very often goes back. In terms of being becoming popular to, to Klopp, it wasn't invented by him. But uh, I think the way he uses it, the way he addresses it, the way he coaches it, makes it maybe very connected to him and especially the word too. So the similarities are there and then it makes sense to scout in these clubs where you can see these similarities and then maybe pick the ones that suits you the best. It's pretty smart. Yeah. And Dortmund has become a very popular, probably the most popular stepping stone club, you could call it. So players go there before their huge move to Real Madrid or Manchester City. Is it a real learning environment then? How do they do that so well? I think the the main thing they do so well is that they are able to get the top talents because it's a it's a big club with a big fan base, so it's very attractive for the top talents. It's I think they're like I think everyone in Europe uh, with more than one scout in the club knew who Jude Bellingham is, but obviously if you have that mixture of being a big club and still being able to give him consistent minutes and promise him that he'll be able to play, I think that just convinces these top top talents to to go there. And then if you give the minutes. Very often, if there is enough support from from the staff, these players will progress through these games because they're high-level games in a high-level environment. And I think that's that's the main part of it. Would there be a lot of one-on-one work with players like Haaland and Bellingham when you were there? Uh, it depended a bit on the schedule and it depended on the way. So if sometimes you do more in uh, just talking uh, about the training and about the games on the pitch. Sometimes you do some top-up things. Sometimes... Uh, when Erling was at Salzburg, you do a lot of individual training because he came with a, a not a simple injury to us, which wasn't dangerous, but that didn't permit him to go 100% at the first weeks and months. So I had the pleasure that basically I was taking over in these days where he had to do it without the team or where he couldn't play. And then he was basically... In individual training for a day so that was uh, really really enjoyable but mostly if you play so many games and you don't want to overload these young players who are still carrying so much responsibility and quality then uh, it's about just talking with them through the games through the trainings and then keep them on the right track but uh, to be honest with these two guys that's a pretty self-regulated task right what sort of work would you do with them on the training pitch on a one-on-one basis? Yeah, it depended a bit on what happened in the last game, also on their wishes. I also always believe that if the player has a wish and a conviction that he wants to improve on something, it's always uh, very good to hear to listen to the players and to hear his thoughts and then try to help him in what he wants to be better at. But also with, with Erling, what we did was a lot of uh, movement in the gaps of a back four in different situations of the game, depending on where the ball position is. If, if you look at his games, maybe the easiest example is if the ball is, you mentioned it, the right half space of a player like, like De Bruyne, what's the best position and angle to then maybe be able to receive a ball? What happens if the ball moves and then you have to relocate what happens if the ball breaks through what is the type of run what are the, the reference points for your perception but again um, I think I've said it already before I've never seen someone who's a quick learner as, as Erling he's the way he adapts these things from the training to the game the transfer and even the understanding of these things is, is just it's a very underrated and hidden quality from him because he's always described as this very physical striker but he's a he's a very smart, very smart guy. 
Yeah. Where do you think that comes from, that uh, ability to learn so quickly and to implement so quickly? Yeah, like, I think if you have a father who, who keeps you on the right path, if you have that character that he has, he stayed. He was not an early bloomer uh, from what I gathered. If you stay at your hometown club, if you have that eagerness to improve, uh, I think that comes with it. And, um, and obviously I met his father and, met, and, and know him. And I think he just, uh, that was just in terms of the family, the whole environment, his character, the character surrounding him. I think that was just very helpful to, to make him who he is today. And uh, you can always look for improvements, but in the end, he's the same at least from what I know, he's the same guy as he was when I met him uh, years ago. And is that something you notice with Bellingham as well, that eagerness to learn? Yes, yes. Like that eagerness to improve, to win, to work on yourself without changing yourself. Like that mixture is, is something that I think, even if they're very different types of players, that really connects them and connects uh, to some other players that I really enjoyed working with in my career. And... After Dortmund, you went on to Leeds United. How did that move come about? Somewhat surprisingly, uh, we left Dortmund at the end of the of the season, and I've never met Jesse before. But he was our successor at Rebel Salzburg, and I, from what I've gathered, a lot of the stuff that I've left there in terms of recreate, because every time we left the club, I would offer the club to leave everything that that I or we produced uh, at the club. And I think he saw some of the work that we did before. I guess he, he liked it. And he probably also heard that like I was always trying to give new ideas and, and feedback and, and, and criticism to Marco. And then I was free and he needed an assistant manager. It was probably short ways of communication to, to get my number and to, to reach out. And we had then talks for some weeks in terms of the role, the alignment and these things. And then... In the end, I thought like Leeds is such a, such a big club, but the Premier League is, is is the biggest league in the world. And I thought, yeah, just why not try something else, try something different, see a different uh, head coach, get experience in the best league against the best opponents of the world. And then again, Leeds is is a huge club, uh, really like the fans, the fan base, but also the people there, stuff, and then the players. It's amazing. Like I think what. What Bielsa left there in terms of that eagerness to work, to be able to take over from that and, and become part of that culture and learn from it was uh, something that I really don't take for granted. And Victor Orta, who was the sporting director of Leeds, now at Sevilla, um, he's also been on the podcast before. He's another one. And I know he was very, very confident that Jesse Marsh would be a good transition from Bielsa. He saw a lot of similarities in the style of play and the characteristics, but it just didn't work out, did it really? What? Why do you think that is looking back? Look, I think just statistically from what I've gathered, like the, the running data from Jesse's teams and, and Marcelo's teams, uh, the, the speed of play in both phases, that eagerness to press high, uh, the way the transition, I think statistically looked very, very similar. So, for Victor, from what I've gathered, what he told me, that was like a natural, a natural uh, fit in terms of like if you just overlay it, it was very similar. And then also having a, a young squad of some uh, rebuild in that summer. I think the idea was to have a coach who has a track record of, of developing talent in, in his, his career, that this was the idea. And... In the end, in terms of why it didn't work out, it's always not easy to say. There are things that you can say, like the expected goals numbers, that they were better than than you'd than the results show. And I think in terms of the absolute amount of running and sprinting, we were still top three in the league. But in terms of the, the per net per minute, we were actually still above Newcastle. So that Bielsa intensity actually kept. It just was at the net playing time against Leeds. Everyone tried to get a, get breaks in, which also doesn't make it easy to play that style consistently. I think three clubs were the only one who had a positive net spend. And there were Leicester, Leeds and City. City obviously won everything and Leeds and... Uh, and Leicester got relegated. But I think in the end, there you can always use these things as factors um, and, and try to explain stuff. But I'm more... It didn't work out. 
I, I can just talk about myself and I'm, I'm quite honest, there are things that I, in retrospective, would have liked to do better. I think that would have deserved to be better uh, in my role. From my perspective, I, I would have loved to be able to do more. I, I had the feeling I didn't, I did try, obviously, to do my best. I wasn't able to, to do that. And in the end, I... After I got fired, I went to the next two games and was in the stands. And I, I still I really enjoyed the club. I learned to really uh, like the people from Yorkshire. And I've met some great people. I'm still in touch with, with some of them. I think that the staff, the locker room is, is good. It's great. And I think in, in that phase, there was also some turmoil in terms of the, the higher-ups. Because obviously, and that's not... A criticism, I anyway, mean, it's just normal. Like if you're selling a club, if you're in the process that every decision has an additional point of discussion, do you want to do it now? Do you do it later? And then things can get slower. And that's that's normal. That's part of, of just the situation and not necessarily the people. And it, it's just sad that in the end, such a historically big club with a great fan base uh, in the end could make it for the season. I'm, I'm still uh, very disappointed that it didn't work out because... Uh, yeah, I still obviously not just in, in contact with a lot of people. I track every every result. I was in touch with the new coaching staff, giving some feedback and ideas and wishing them luck. And uh, I think they're doing a great job for a great team. And what would you have liked to have done more of? Do you mean on the training pitch? No, just in terms of um, the way I work my role. I think in the end, I would have liked to do it better. There obviously are always reasons for these things, but again, I, I'm, I always like to talk about things that I'm uh, that are about me. And I think if, if I would be able to redo it, there are some things that I would would like uh, to have maybe done uh, differently, addressed differently, worked differently, just just for myself and from my own perspective. Um, I, I think I didn't do the job that I wanted to do. Sadly. And did that give you an appetite to work in England again? Because I look and your name is often linked with jobs when they come up, you know, in the championship particularly. Yeah, I mean, the football culture is, is amazing there. I think it's, it's very important and it's very helpful that I've I've learned uh, some, some things uh, when I was there because I think if you come to a club, country, whatever, uh, you have to adapt to it. You have to understand the culture. You have to adapt to it. And then obviously from understanding that, you can try to have success with your way. But but the starting point is not yourself. The starting point is the culture uh, and, and uh, the intention of the club, the culture of the country, the demands of the league. And to be able to understand that, I think this is a very big key learning for me. And uh, I really, really was positively surprised about a lot of things. And I would really like to work there because I think in the end that the premise, the, the biggest league in the world and the championship is such a great league of so many different teams, obviously, because <laughs> there are many different teams. But like if you just go through the ranks, so many historical teams, great games, great fan bases, a tough league. The very specific demands, and uh, it's just it's just a great challenge. And what are your ambitions for the future? Do you want to be a head coach? So yeah, um, I'm a head coach now in the under 19. So I was a head coach. Uh, sorry, yeah, I was senior. Too. I was a head coach at the amateur <laughs> level, and uh, yeah. before, and I always, even when I became an assistant when I was very young, for me it was always to to learn things, which which was helpful because. I always knew even then that I want to be back as a head coach after I did my, my learning as an assistant. So I would always not just reflect things that happen, but I would reflect them in a way where I think, okay, if I was a head coach, I would have do it. Did, do I understand why marketing? And then I would ask him questions and I would uh, always have it in mind that in, in the midterm future, I want to be a head coach again, like I was an amateur level. And I can use this as an opportunity to improve and not just be part of the journey, but actually reflect on that journey in a very specific way in terms of if I was put on the spot, how would I react? If I was put on the spot, uh, how did he react? Why is there a difference? And then just talk with him. And he was always, and again, that's why I'm so grateful. He was always very open and some things I, I've learned from him and some things uh, maybe I, I disagreed with him and we discussed it and I learned something from the discussion and maybe 
I still decided that I would do some things in my way because uh, I think, again, you have some convictions, some beliefs, some uh, some non-negotiable things. And uh, for me, it was always that in intention from the start with uh, using that journey to just, yeah, I mean, go on a journey that's very, very special with uh, working with these players and in, in, in these leagues. But with the intention that one day I want to be a head coach again. And now, because of these circumstances here, I accepted uh, that head coach position until until summer to just help the club, the players. And uh, in the end, I know the type of guy, even if the amateur level, I just love being on the pitch. So it's uh, it's amazing. I have a lot of fun. And uh, I just can feel that that's, that's the right step. And just now to find uh, the right club for the next step. And are you still fascinated by tactics? So going all the way back to Spiva, Lagerung, what what tactics are you interested in? Tactics don't exist. Like uh, you have uh, decisions of players and tactics just mean where people use to influence these decisions. But I want to be, uh, I want to improve their understanding of the game. So if if there's no goalkeeper, you would obviously try to score. And uh, that's a very extreme example. But if you get pressed from the right, you kind of run through the opponent, you have to get around him. It might be the right touch past him, it might be a pass, it might be that you adapt your position before. So there are some some tools and some ideas that I developed in terms of uh, calling these things in a simple way and, and, and teaching them. But in the end, I see my role as a head coach, uh, as a manager, that I want to influence and improve the decision making of the players and I think the word tactics is, is very confusing actually because what strategy was tactics and people use it and then you talk and then it's the other way around or it's that which is fine I accept everything but for me it's very clear that I always want to work from the player and then it's about the, the decision making and in, in a way to align the decision making of 11 players to know if this happens what's the role of each other and that relates to the opponent. Obviously, there's some adaptation, but in the end, there's some things that are no matter where you play, might be a different space and time that you need or that is in front of you. But uh, some situations, some actions are the same everywhere in the world. And that was a big, big part of my personal journey to um, that feeling that I always had to put into words, to make it more concise, to slim it down to basically the the most important things uh, about the game. Because we do see some very interesting innovations, don't we, which always capture people's imagination. So I'm thinking things like the uh, relationism in uh, Brazil with the defending. Um, I think when when we talked about the Red Bull pressing style, I mentioned a little bit, like you have these three reference points of the ball, the teammate and the opponent. And then when you first look at the opponent against the ball, like defensively, you would call it man marking. If you're looking first at your teammate, you call it zonal marking. And then if you're looking first at the ball, you, people will call it pressing. And it doesn't matter how you call it. And if you have these distinctions against the ball defensively, why would you not have them uh, offensively? And uh, if you then want to call it positional play or relationism and put them against each other, for me, that's that's a discussion that I like to read because I can reflect on it. But uh, the moment you go away from these reference points, for me, you can use it because I think it's useful to, to discuss and to reflect. But it's not something that's, for me, important for the players. So for me, it's, it's good as an exercise for myself and reflect on things and learn. But in the end, I, I always tie it back to what are the important information and the, the actual relevant things on the pitch for the players. So that's how my thinking was shaped the last years. Mm-hmm. And I was talking to a very, very good coach educator today called Brian Ashton. And he was saying he thinks sometimes tactics can be restrictive because they're stopping the players thinking for themselves on the pitch. Yeah, that's another reason why I only think about from the player's perspective and in terms of the decision making. Because uh, if, if you get pressed on the outside, you there is space in behind that, but you might have to go inside in one way or the other to get to that space that the opponent uh, opened. And then if you want to make it with formations and everything, yes, but you might make it uh, harder to grasp and then you maybe need half a second longer and then you might not be able to execute that decision or you might make the wrong decision. So it's a matter of the quality of explanation 
And I think it helps with the quality explanation if you focus on on the the eyes and the head and the legs of the players and uh, teach teach the game and not teach uh, your personal favorite style or, or uh, language or whatever. And just a final question, Ranen, you've touched on it quite a bit already, but what type of a head coach would you be? So I'm thinking in terms of playing principles and also leadership and uh, management. Sometimes because now you could delve into discussions about any single little thing, but um, it's maybe easier to say the teams that I really love to watch. And I think if you obviously in the last years, that rivalry between Liverpool and Man City, very often people would side one way or the other. Uh, in terms just of, of who I like to watch, so don't take it as a, as a judgment of other coaches or, or that coach or that team or whatever, but like the team that I like to watch the most is Arsenal. Uh, I really enjoy watching their games. And then you have a lot of other fantastic teams. Obviously, Man City is amazing. You have Liverpool, a lot of teams in the Prem. Uh, Inter with Inzaghi, you have a lot of uh, great teams in, in the Bundesliga and in, in the top three, you have three amazing teams. Uh, you have Brighton, but like, if you would ask me if I could wish for my team to play like a single team, I might actually choose Arsenal because I think that mixture of what I mentioned to be able to to play a specific style with the ball and against the ball. I think they just fulfill it in a way that I think is, is very attractive and that is very obviously not easy to, to create and it takes some time and I really enjoy watching them and I think uh, if you go back last season the championship uh, Swansea with Russell Martin and then Burnley with Vincent they were uh, really good to watch too. So you have these teams on any level. Ipswich, the last two seasons, is, is a tremendous job, tremendous job by McKenna. So that type of football in general. And if you ask me for a very specific iteration, I might just go with Arsenal. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Ronnie. Thank you for <laughs> taking time to talk with me and... Uh, I think, uh, I don't know how much will be in the end in the podcast, but I think you, it's, it's pretty, if you talk with me about football, it can be quite time consuming, right? Thank you for listening to the Training Ground Guru podcast in association with Huddle. We'll be back next month with another episode. In the meantime, you can follow our latest updates on the website and on Twitter at ground underscore guru.